So the problem statement that I became obsessed with wasn't around the AI tech. It was about being able to clone the cognitive reasoning of experts to create AI companions for those that were not as clever. And that is all I think about. And until I'm done, just a dog with a bone, I can't do anything but that. So for me, the technology is just a way to make that happen that I never thought was possible. Because what we're really using with cognitive expert systems is being able to find patterns because experts don't think linearly. We don't think in if-then statements. We don't think in decision trees. That's for very junior staff. Senior experts, they think laterally. They keep a lot of things in their head and there's lots of ways to solve a problem. Some are just better than others. So what I love is just being able to use that technology for that pattern recognition and perfect memory. Hello, and welcome to More Intelligent Tomorrow, a wide-ranging exploration of the potential impact of AI on the world around us, as envisioned by the future heroes of the human and machine intelligence revolution. Can AI ask questions, not just answer them? I think I just did. Well, anyway, we'll discuss this and more with Linda Klug on today's episode. And now, your host, Ben Taylor. Linda, I'm so excited to have you here. And you're my second favorite CEO, but I might have to say third favorite. And so hopefully you forgive me that you're now my third favorite CEO. It's complicated. I'm guessing Gonzo's one, and now your new CEO is probably your second one, right? Yeah, Jeremy. So it's complicated. But a lot of people want to emulate your career somehow. Your career is inspiring the work that you're doing. And so I'd love for you to tell the audience, how did you get to where you are today? And then we'll transition where you can talk about the company. So what has your career looked like? Sure. So my bachelor's degree is in formal logic, which is a part of philosophy. And my parents were completely distressed that that was my choice. So my parents are immigrants. They were hoping that I would go into some science or something really practical. But turns out all these years later, formal logic is great for AI. So it wasn't such a terrible choice after all. So after school, I worked on disasters full time for five years. So I worked in the war in former Yugoslavia while working for the UN. I worked for the American Red Cross. I was on 55 different catastrophic events. And I'm from Silicon Valley. So it was the early 90s. And that's when everything started to boom. And I became fascinated with the whole of data and systems in technology and how the world was getting interconnected that way. So that's how I actually got into a technical life. And I never left. So I got a graduate degree in applied economics and I hold 12 enterprise patents. Ten of them are in Veritas software and two are for innovations in artificial intelligence. That's awesome. So I think with machine learning patents... A lot of people get excited about them, thinking that they're required today. And the people that have written them, they kind of uh, like, you know, so maybe to just kind of shoot off on a quick question, how do you decide when you should invest in a patent versus a trade secret as a founder running the company that you're running now? So for us, we had 30 days before the one year was up for a certain part of our tech. And we met with the patent attorney and he got really excited about how we solved a particular problem that he thought was an innovation in AI itself. So we were the first to actualize an AI theory from the 80s around knowledge engineering. So it was kind of this choice where we didn't have much time to think about it and we just did it. And then there was one other patent that was related to it. So it wasn't something super well thought out, but it wasn't very expensive to do. We made the deadline by one day. And within the next month, a company reached out and was interested in actually engaging us as infrastructure as a service. And the patent was really meaningful to them. Okay. One day, that sounds stressful. 
You know, I don't like to be last minute. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess to complete that, the most important part of the story is what led you to go out into the unknown and start this company, Aaron. So maybe tell the audience about that jumping point, which from any sane person that understands what you did, it's insanity. Explain that jumping point and then explain what you're working on today. So one of my customers, I was consultant and there was a day that he was absolutely furious and it's one of my favorite clients. He's a mild-mannered person. I never saw him lose his temper ever. And he was furious because there was about 120 experts working on his complex technical project. And two years went by and nothing had gotten done. And he put me in charge of architecting this solution. He said, Linda, I don't think the problem is the tech. I think the problem are the people. They're just not understanding each other. So just go figure that out. And when I went to go and talk to all these folks, there were people from really big names because they're, you know, half were clients, half were vendors. And I just asked them, it's been two years. What's the next question? What's the next problem statement? Like, where are you stuck? And no one could give me an answer. And that kind of just led to the first part of an insight that in my background in enterprise tech, we haven't changed since the 90s. We're still having a lot of meetings, a lot of emails, and it's taking us like six months to two years to architect anything. And that just seemed ridiculous. When I sat down for lunch with the former CIO of Veritas, Greg Valdez, and he said, you know, Linda, those decision trees in your head, you can teach a machine to do that. So then I became obsessed. I started reading nonstop. I probably slept three hours a night for five months, but I just could not read enough about it. And Aaron got started. Yeah. No, I, I love what you're saying right now because, and maybe you've heard this if you have opportunities to go speak to a university or where you have really green students that are coming out and they want to do a startup and they want to do a startup for startup's sake. And you're talking about obsession. And I think that's a really key thing for people that want to do a startup. You better care about what you're working on. So it sounds like you definitely caught that fire. And when you reminisce and think about what was done and what decisions were made, what, what are some things that come to mind when you think about lessons learned? Probably the biggest lesson I learned is patience. And I thought I had a lot of it from enterprise because everything moves really slow. Enterprise clients move slow. I was really well prepared for long timelines in general. This startup definitely kicked my butt on patience. <laughs> it's been really tough to kind of apply your enterprise life to then startup life and realizing that so many variables are not in your control. And you have to just control the things you can and work hard on the things you can. But a lot of things happen to us. A lot of luck. So for example, three months into development, Google's AI services platform came out with a service that like saved us six months engineering. Couldn't have predicted that, right? Other things of just finding the right people at the right time that would have been super hard to really calculate. Like we had to find an architect for AI that coded all day. Couldn't afford both. And we found him. But... Things like that really early on that were really tough kind of just taught me a lot about that some things are luck that move fast, but a lot of things are patience that moved really slow. Yeah. So maybe to give you more credit for the luck, I think luck comes down to being ready for the opportunity. How can you be ready for luck when you have something available like that? How can you even take advantage of it? Or, or what, what's your mindset around luck? I look at luck as just being external variables that are not in your control and that I call it luck when it's just positive, but it also goes badly sometimes. At the startup, there's just an exponential number of those unknown variables. And I think for people like you and I that are in AI, and especially for those of us that have startups in AI, so we're not part of some big machine that can afford a lot, you know, 
luck is huge when you're kind of relying on the evolution of the technology and anticipation of what you need. So some of the things that we need, I have faith that it's going to be there when we get there in development. To me, that is part of that preparedness is like we're prepared working towards it, but we are kind of counting also on some things going our way. You have to. I just don't think you can plan out a startup as if everything can be executed. Otherwise, it wouldn't be new. Yeah, definitely. And, and plus, playing in the technology space, especially the AI space, yikes, like this landscape is changing so quickly. How could you plan two years out with what's coming online? So, you, you know, not that I have a good reference for this, but kind of the mindset is every six months, there are new tools, new applications, new things that potentially could support you and your startup. This actually leads to another question. AI is a very dangerous thing because a lot of people fall prey to the shiny new toy. I'd love your perspective on this because you're coming from the executive perspective, but you're managing individuals that are technophiles. They love the technology. They love the shiny new toy. And so how do you play that balance between a shiny new toy that does change and offer value for the company versus maybe the warning to not now, it's not the right time. So how do you manage technophiles and what is your mindset as an executive? So I'm also obsessed with the tech. I love it. But my primary driver is the problem statement. And to me, that problem statement is it's really difficult to scale experts. And I'm fascinated by the fact that there's variance in experts, even though they have the same amount of experience. So the problem statement that I became obsessed with wasn't around the AI tech. It was about being able to clone the cognitive reasoning of experts to create AI companions for those that were not as clever. And that is all I think about. And until I'm done, I'm just a dog with a bone, I can't do anything but that. So for me, the technology is just a way to make that happen that I never thought was possible. Because what we're really using with cognitive expert systems is being able to find patterns because experts don't think linearly. We don't think in if-then statements. We don't think in decision trees. That's for very junior staff. Senior experts, they think laterally. They keep a lot of things in their head and there's lots of ways to solve a problem. Some are just better than others. It's just hard to keep a memory of all of those possibilities. So what I love is just being able to use that technology for that pattern recognition and perfect memory. And I'm getting older. I can't remember everything the same, but Aaron can. You're listening to More Intelligent Tomorrow, an artificial intelligence podcast brought to you in high fidelity by Data Robot. I've got a list of questions here, but I feel like I don't need to even look at this list of questions because all of your answers, they just open up more questions. And so like you're hitting on experts don't scale, human experts don't scale. You're focused in a very specific industry, but this is a bigger topic where how do you unlock human expertise? Because a process can get trapped inside a human. And this happens everywhere. It happens in banking and in insurance. Like I remember when I worked in manufacturing, if you had a big problem, you'd go talk to the individual with some gray in their hair because like how many processes are trapped in them that you need to go talk to them. So AI feels like a fantastic enabler. A lot of times people see AI as human versus AI, and some of us see it as human plus AI. So maybe speak to that. So Aaron is AI augmentation of humans. So it's the idea that those special people that are a lot better than their peers they create models in Aaron to clone their cognitive reasoning, how they connect those dots in their head laterally. And it creates an AI companion for other experts. And what we mean by that is the expert humans rely on their judgment, creativity, and empathy. But Aaron's really good at perfect memory and pattern recognition. It turns out some amazing results when you combine 
kind of the experts that have a foundation of knowledge, but maybe aren't as talented at that pattern recognition. But with that little help of that perfect memory and pattern, we just see some amazing results in it. Yeah, I've been obsessed about this exact topic where those experts, in a way, you're unlocking their creativity. Like, what could they work on now? How could they review a process that's stale that would not have changed for 10 years if you had not come along? But now there's an opportunity for it to improve, right? Like, there's so many questions that are kind of spinning around. But one of the ones that I want to make sure we speak on, um, this is more of a personal question, but I would not want to be your competitor because I can sense your obsession. You are obsessed on this topic. But the problem with obsession, and this is like a word of warning, is how do you manage work-life balance? So for the other people that are obsessed, how do you stay sane and be obsessed at the same time? So I'm also a mom, so that really keeps things real when you go home. <laughs> I have lots of responsibilities when I get home, and it's a lot more immediate needs. And so that there's not really a choice when you've got kids to take care of and their joy, you know, as well. So for me, some of it is family and I'm in a rock band. So I play music and I play with some other people that are also technical. It's kind of their break and we enjoy that. So play for a couple hours a week, play some gigs and we're good. Wow. Where are these gigs? Where can people come see these gigs? We're not good. So they're all in, <laughs> <laughs> are these in Park City because you're in Park City, right? I live in Park City and they're not even the tier A, you know, bars or clubs where the younger bands play. We're definitely all old. So we're kind of in the tier B, but we still get kicked. That's that's awesome. So do you have certain rules that you try to abide by? Like, do you put your phone away when you're with your family or no laptops? Like, what are some of the things you've learned to really be there in the moment with your family? My phone is always with me, but I've broken an obsession of looking at it constantly, but it is always with me. So that I don't break. But 6.30 to 9 o'clock is our family time. So 6.30, I cook with my husband. 7 to 8, I've got a routine with my younger son that I never break. So I'll even leave things early to do that. So that's a big part of our day. My daughter and I, she's 19. She's in college. We play video games together. She's home now because of COVID and also home now for the summer. But we actually rigged it through Zoom even before all this happened. So she would play in her dorm room. So we would always play like once a week. And so those things are important. What, what video games do you like playing? I love strategy games in general, and I could talk about video games for like way too long. So I'll try to make this one. You're also talking to a huge technophile audience. So they're probably on the edge of their seats thinking, what video games? This is okay. very important. So I love strategy games like Don't Starve. It's really a lot like what I do for a living, right? It's like thinking laterally. It's like there aren't rules or plan. You just have to not starve. And so I love that. And with my daughter, yeah, we played the Nancy Drew, which is really old style, but they have nice storylines and it's just very appealing. So definitely puzzle games. I hate shooting things, but I know you like to shoot things. So, so for your followers, I want to tell them that story because so I'm in this conference of 15,000 people. It's huge. Ben writes a text for, are you? Cause of course he's late and they're already talking. It takes forever to triangulate where we actually are. Cause there's like no markers. He finally like stumbles over and like gets in a seat. Pops a laptop over in and it's like scrolling all this code. I just gave you a look. And then Ben's like, I just programmed. So like, you know, Halo, it's like, I'm learning to optimize it. and like kill people or something. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things I talk about are passion projects, because for people that are developing their careers, they want to tool up on certain skill sets. And my argument is, well, you need to find something you're actually passionate about. And it doesn't matter what it is. Be really, really selfish. And so for this game, it's Call of Duty, which is like Halo. So, you know, you're totally fine. Players are not offended that you called this game Halo. Um, and it was funny because I was giving a presentation in Minneapolis on this game, showing how I'm teaching AI to play it. 
and someone came up and told me I should have played Fortnite. And internally, I'm like, Fortnite? Fortnite's like Halo crossed with Minecraft. Like, no way. I'm not. I'm not that's a stupid game. So, <laughs> so the feedback was, if it had been Fortnite, it would have never happened. And so I think for people that do passion projects, do it for you. Don't do it for anyone else. And it's nice when marketing aligns or when there's tech interest that aligns. I, I was going to tease you. Was, what, what's the history here? Like what video games did you grow up playing? What's the 20 year video game memory that you think of? So when I was younger, I only played, you know, like Pong and you played Pac-Man, you know, in arcades, right? And the neighbor got a Commodore 64, you know, right? And you would play like a couple of games. But like a lot of people, I didn't play them actually for a while. And it was long after college, I was working in the Bay Area. This is now mid-90s, so it's still kind of early from the boom. And I just met a group of friends that worked around the corner that were video game engineers. And we started just having lunch together. They were just around the corner. And they're like, you really should play. I'm like, it's for kids. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they got me hooked. And I've converted many other adults to video games as well. And to me, Icebreaker is versus Zombies is a great game. Yeah, you told me about that one and you were disappointed that I've never played it. I still need to play it. I haven't done it yet. So to me, it's great for adults because it's really strategic, but there's still like a fun element to it. They did a great job at EA where it makes you feel smart because you can do it, but you can't do it the first time. It's that balance of hard enough that you've got to really work for it, which then brings you that reward when you get to the other side, which I'm hoping to get from this startup, by the way. I'm just on the hard work part. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm cheering for you. You've got cheerleaders. Um, I have so much love and respect for everything you guys have been doing. I want to make sure we kind of go back to what you guys are working on over there. So I know you guys are building AI models for a variety of customers. One of the things that we constantly deal with in AI is how do you generalize something? So like, do you build one model for all the customers? Do you build models for certain applications? Maybe what's your perspective when it comes to building AI models for your clients? So our dream was to be able to deliver AI expert system technology directly into the hands of experts so they can innovate and iterate on their own. I always saw this gap between business people and the technologists. They don't communicate the same. And I made a lot of money in consulting, bridging that gap, helping my CIOs say the same thing, but in a way that business people can consume. Years doing that. You and I presented once together where you talked about AI as a science project. That's sometimes what happens because the business people have this idea in mind and they fund this to happen. And the engineers and AI guys, they, they make exactly what the business people said and it doesn't provide this value and everyone is frustrated. So for me, the big inspiration was what could be possible if the people themselves could have access to it. It was a very big build, but this idea of building a business UI to a platform for expert systems. We were surprised. So our clients, they make their models themselves, and that's the entire premise. We've got it down now to where someone with a high school education, they can make a model in about three hours that actually gets at least Aaron started, that they can actually get immediate value of it. We were surprised that it was just easy for them. And I imagine there was some back and forth to kind of figure that out initially, right? To kind of get there. Actually, no, that was the surprising thing. But Alicia, so we built Aaron for solution engineers from my background. And during beta testing, five of our customers wanted to use it in a contact center. And we said no, because we just thought the UI was not built for an agent. So we did not touch the UI at all. And we were stunned. They built models. We got four questions the first day and no one called customer service for a month. We still don't have support because people don't call. So that part was a surprise. 
Well, it's fascinating because most people fail. By most people, I mean most companies, like large, large companies, they never connect ROI to AI, ever. And AI projects remain notebooks trapped inside a technophile. So what advice would you give to other executives, maybe people that aren't in your line of work? How do you make AI successful? How would you approach using AI to ensure that it actually does deliver return on investment? I think the experience I had with Greg is what needs to happen in every company, which is Greg explaining to me how cognitive expert systems worked and what was possible, that it was about memory and pattern recognition. They weren't necessarily decision trees. Just explaining that, I made that connection then with my own expertise. So to me, the business person understands the problem statement to solve, but I couldn't even imagine solving this problem until someone actually told me what was possible. So it never occurred to me to scale an expert this way. I couldn't conceive of what a cognitive expert system could do, but the minute he explained it, everything made sense. But again, Greg was a CIO of a Fortune 500 company at Veritas at CA Technologies. Like his job is to bridge technology with business people. I had the best person to explain something like that to me. And I think that's not that common in enterprise. Yeah. So it, communication breakdown sounds like it's the root cause where you have technical people that don't understand the business objectives. You have business individuals that don't understand the, the possibilities or the capabilities. What could happen if you aligned? Yeah, it seems like this is the constant challenge in our field is how, how do you allow people with completely different mindsets to communicate? And I think a lot of times people try to hire in the middle, like I'm going to hire a chief day officer and it's their problem. They will either succeed or fail and we'll leave it up to them. That's super interesting. So I think we have time for, um, okay, what technologies do you depend on the most outside of work? You know, just what comes to mind, are there certain technologies that are really interesting to you right now that are making a big difference for you or your company? That's a fine question. Let me think about that one. So device-wise, I am in love with my iPad. My phone, I can take it or leave it, but my iPad, I go to sleep with it, right? So like, I'll fall asleep watching Star Trek, you know? Um, I want to make sure I, I hit on this. I've seen some iPad super users that blow people away. Are you an iPad super user? What are some of the most impressive things you can do with an iPad? I watch movies, so very, very low, very low bar over here. Well, I think to me, it's more the intimacy of it. I play video games on it. I do watch things on it. I do some email, but like not that much. And there's some other apps that I do maybe use for work. It's more that it's shape and it's size that you can take it with you everywhere. There is an elegance in that design that I just grew really attached to it. And, you know, a huge part when we try to design Aaron is our own design. That's why my co-founder is a designer, which most people would not think to do. But to me, everything is like that bridge of communication. Yeah. Hopefully this isn't too big of a generalization, but I think there's people in tech that don't respect design as much as they should. And it, and it sounds like your co-founder has a very strong design background. So what's your perspective on the importance of having you know, good design, user experience feedback loop, where maybe there are a lot of technophiles out there that don't really see it as a core science. When I had the inspiration for Erin, I knew Alicia for years, but I thought it was so important. I sought her out to be my co-founder, that this was going to be half the company, that half the company was going to be, how do you communicate AI expert systems to everyone? How can you put that in everyone's hands? And our first funding was from a Microsoft Ventures seed fund called Alonzi Ventures. They hired three architects who just thought about it for two months because I wanted not just this delivery of putting that in people's hands where they can actually train it on their own, but also where it could be taught any expertise. And those were really, at the time, not things that had been solved, but they did figure it out. 
And to me, everything was, there's the technical part to figure out, but the delivery of that's everything. Yeah. I kind of have this full circle of respect now for designers, like people that understand how you would interact with the product. It's not something I thought about before. You assume you build great technology and people will use it. That's not true. Um, I want to make sure I ask this question here. This is a very important question. Does Star Trek provide any inspiration for where AI could head or do they miss the boat? Are they, well, actually the iPad is probably more advanced than anything in Star Trek or is it? When I watch Star Trek, I'm not thinking. You're not critiquing them. You're like, no, no, no. Like, no, I've seen every episode of every single series so many times that I could listen to it just audio wise. And I know it's going, I'm not thinking when I'm watching Star Trek. Is there anything from Star Trek that inspires you that leaves Star Trek or is it more of an entertainment escape? Uh, you know, well, I'll at least tell you what my favorite is right now. So I read an article from a Star Trek reviewer like that was really into it that said Deep Space Nine is the most underrated Star Trek series ever. And I watched it the first time and I didn't like it at all like everybody else. So after reading that article, I watched it again and I love it. Like I've probably now watched it several times. There is this depth that I absolutely missed before that touches on things like World War II, touches on things like different kinds of tension between groups, not just people. And it's actually really relevant today. That's good to know. I, I grew up with Captain Kirk, like the classic, like I'm actually less familiar with these other Star Trek seasons. I know you and I, like we talked about this, going to sleep is sometimes hard after you have started, right? Like insomnia is kind of part of the deal. There is nothing that puts me to sleep faster than Shatner. That's much better than reading patents. Reading patents puts you to sleep too. Like the language they use is ridiculous. I, I think we're at time, but Linda, thank you so much for coming on this. It's fantastic. So much love and respect for the work you're doing. And we'll definitely include uh, links through so people can check out the work you guys are doing at your site. We do have a lot of IT directors that do follow us that are already customers of our AI offering. So I really appreciate this, Linda. This is great. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. Yeah, so good to see you. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of More Intelligent Tomorrow. Feel free to subscribe to continue discovering the heroes of tomorrow, illuminating the path forward today. Visit us at datarobot.com slash podcast to learn more.